0: Good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining us tonight virtually to talk about voting reform and City Club research. I am Leslie Johnson, president elect of City Club. As we start the program, I want to make an important acknowledgement. Most of us in North America live on stolen land. Here in the Portland region, this is the territory of the Multnomah, Cathlamet, and Clackamas, the Tualatin, Kalapuya and Malala, the Wasco, Calitz, and many other indigenous people who have known the Columbia and Willamette Rivers as their home for thousands of years. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connections to this land, and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope of future generations. I want to welcome my co-host tonight, Iris Maria. Iris Maria Chavez. She is a longtime City Club member and governor Iris, thank you for helping me out tonight. Thank you,
1: Leslie. It's
0: my pleasure to be here with you. Like many
1: of you out there, lately I've been thinking a lot about what works in Portland and what doesn't. We've seen communities mobilize campaigns for clean energy, preschool, libraries, and more. And since COVID, I've seen how we've taken care of each other by wearing masks, maintaining distance, and making an extra effort to support small businesses. This spring and summer, I also saw many of you out there marching in the streets or lying down on the Burnside Bridge, demanding a meaningful response to generations of violence against Black people in this city and around the world. We've also witnessed a city council that has been slow to respond to the crises we're facing, a council that feels disconnected from the people. All five city council members are voted at large, meaning they are elected by the entire city and they each have different bureaus under their control. The question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, is that working? Especially in times of crisis like we're experiencing right now, do we think the commission form of government
0: is capable of meeting the moment? That's right. At City Club, we've been asking a lot of questions about the structure of Portland's government. Two separate volunteer research committees have spent portions of the last three years examining Portland's form of government and how we vote. Each report gathered ideas for how we can all work together to build a new government, an equitable system that represents the diverse histories, experiences, and interests of all Portlanders. As you'll hear from tonight's speakers, one big conclusion that emerged from this research is this, our form of government, the commission form of government, is inequitable and in need of significant reform. So we'll start out tonight's program with a video from the research committee. Then we'll
1: hear from Commissioner-Elect Carmen Rubio, who will talk about her experiences running for office in Portland. We'll then turn to a couple of experts on voting and elections, Kirsten Everhart of the Sightline Institute
0: and Pedro Hernandez of Fair Vote. Once we've heard from our invited speakers, it will be your turn to talk about the kind of government you want to see in Portland. At a little after 7 p.m., we'll be forming breakout groups where you and a few other participants can discuss the research report, share ideas or experiences, and gather questions for our panel discussion.
1: The panel discussion will follow the breakout groups and will include Mark Stefan and Jenny Lee from City Club's research committee, and Kristen Eberhardt and Pedro Hernandez, our voting experts. Finally, once the talking is over, if you're a City Club member, You'll get a chance to vote on whether to adopt or reject the latest research. This is a tradition that goes back more than 100 years and is what determines whether City Club is able to advocate for the research findings. During tonight's event, if you're a City Club member, you should receive an email that will allow you to cast your vote on the research. If you think you're a City Club member and did not receive that email, please send us a
0: message to info at pdxcityclub.org. P- p- We're almost ready to get started with tonight's program, but first I want to express our deepest gratitude to the research committee members who worked on this recent report. Mark Stefan, Jordan Cole, Shanice Clark, Jenny Lee, Paulina Perry, Ricardo Luthon, Nathan Navum, Carissa Page, and Robin Yee. You've done outstanding work and have given us a lot to discuss. This has been an unusually difficult year for many reasons. For this committee, you expected your hard work and research to be shared back in March, and that didn't happen. But you have remained dedicated to this project through the spring, the summer, and the fall, through changes in City Club staff and board leadership, and through months in which the City's charter reform process itself was uncertain. I really just want to say, That this kind of volunteer leadership is what City Club is all about. You are leaders for our community and we thank you. I also want to express our appreciation for tonight's sponsors, More Equitable Democracy and Luke Caney's. We genuinely appreciate your helping us create a civic space for this conversation. All
1: right, is everyone ready to get started? First up is the research committee. Mark Stefan, Chrisa Page, Jordan Cole, and Palana Leperi pre-recorded a socially distanced roundtable discussion about the committee's work. This is an abridged version of the video, but the full re- the full recording is available on the research page of our website. So let's watch.
2: As some of you may remember, early in 2019, the Portland City Club released a landmark report that sparked a wide conversation about what kind of system of government we want to have here in Portland. Specifically, the report was focused on Portland's antiquated and quirky commission form of government. In this system, commissioners serve as both legislators and executives, In city bureaus that aren't assigned to them until after they're elected might not have anything to do with their previous expertise and can change at any time. Last year's committee came to a clear and compelling conclusion that this system of government is deeply inequitable and extremely inefficient. It's important to note that the system of at-large voting is closely tied to the commission form of government. Otherwise, if the city were to divide into districts, you could end up in a situation where a representative from one district was responsible for all the city's parks or all of its utilities, which could lead to really corrupt results. Because last year's report strongly recommended changing the commission form of government, the City Club realized that it was also important to study the separate but closely related issue of voting. And that's what led to them commissioning this committee.
3: Our current City Council is one of the most diverse that it has been um, in history. And yet, when you really look at the history of the Portland City Council, we know that it has not had uh, the sort of diversity that it could. The Sightline Institute has actually pointed out some really important information about this that kind of gives us a sense of of how bad it's been. If you look over the last 30 years, for example, uh, and you look at the number of years that commissioners uh, have been on uh, the city council or the number of years altogether that have been served, uh, over two thirds of those years have been served by council members who come from the most affluent Neighborhoods, or at least some of the most affluent neighborhoods in all of Portland, um, we've only had one council member who's been from North Portland, and only two who have come from east of 82nd. The fact is, is that in terms of people of color as well on the council, we have have just not lived up to expectations. Part of the reason for this clearly has to be the at-large election system that we have, a system where city council members are elected citywide, not in particular districts. Uh, For a variety of reasons, um, this is problematic. 49% of the voters can consistently be left out of proper representation for their interest. Uh, And this is a point of concern. This sort of distorted representation has been a problem in other cities in the past. And partly for this reason, almost every major city in this country has gotten rid of at-large representation. Since 1965, whether voluntarily or through lawsuits, most cities have chosen to move in a different direction. In fact, there are only two cities, Portland and Columbus, who still use this form of representation. How has this affected the outcomes here
4: in Portland?
5: If you come from certain communities or certain neighborhoods in Portland, you're far less likely to have a voice in city hall. And regardless of where you live, you have no representative to call your own. But well, Let me give you an example to illustrate how this type of system impacts the kind of outcomes we see. Fairly or not, many people in Portland consider 82nd Avenue to be a bedroom. Never mind that East of 82nd is home to 30% of Portland's population and 40% of its youth. It's also the most diverse and rapidly growing part of Portland, but this is a part of Portland that also has seen a clear and long-standing backlog of neglect from inadequate sidewalks to streets, lights, sewer systems. Part of the issue is that Portland upholds a system in which no one is answerable to this geographic area. Other than Joanne Hardesty, the only other commissioner to have hailed from East of 82nd is Randy Leonard who left council in 2012. This is also part of Portland that is less likely to vote and far less likely to donate to political campaigns. You know, I think more work needs to be done to understand why East of 82nd has lower voter turnout. But generally speaking, I think that when people feel disenfranchised, when they feel like their vote doesn't matter, they're naturally going to be less enthused about participating in the system. So first and foremost, we adopted an equity lens to guide our work. We also agreed to seven uh, principles, all rooted in equity considerations, to inform our analysis. We tried to talk to as many people as we could in the time frame we had. We wanted to hear from a diverse range of voices to to learn different aspects of the issue and hear competing view, viewpoints and triangulate findings to draw our own conclusions. We talked to uh, voting experts at think tanks and universities in Portland and across the country. We talked to somebody who ran the Districts Now campaign in 2013 in Seattle, as well as some change experts, some people who ran change campaigns in, in California. Uh, we also talked to a couple commissioners who each offered a unique point of view. In addition, we talked to a panel of community leaders hailing from various community based organizations in Portland. And speaking for me personally, that's the one that impacted me the most.
2: We really want to make sure we recognize the importance of hearing from communities who have been historically marginalized by the current system of government about the reasons why they choose to vote or not, to understand their perspectives about representation, and to hear from them about what kinds of solutions would best address their concerns. Our committee's report is one part of a much larger conversation, and in particular, we know that the City of Portland is currently assembling a charter review commission to take a hard look at these issues and many others. We hope and expect that the commission will be intentional about elevating the voices of historically marginalized communities as part of this process, because that ultimately is the point. We need diverse voices at the table to make sure that city government is really, really working for all the communities that it's meant to work
3: for. We need to move to an electoral system where all of the voting happens when most people vote, in November. The system we have now, the two-step process of primaries and the general election, actually mean that a huge number of voters are not involved in a lot of the decision-making because they're not voting in the primaries in May. If we move to something like uh, ranked choice voting, in particular, Um, We could deal with this problem and have all of the voting occurring in November when the bulk of voters are participating. Portland likes to think of itself as weird, but this is not a characteristic of our politics that we should be proud of. Uh, So we need to move away from at-large voting. We also support as a committee, and strongly so, a multi-member district form of government. A lot of people out there aren't necessarily familiar with multi-member districts. Uh, But the basic idea is that multi-member districts allow greater representation of of minority interest in a given district. They allow wider representation in that district. Implementing this requires, on some level, some sort of proportional representation to make it really work effectively. Uh, So this would uh, involve some other changes as well. This sounds complicated, uh, but really it isn't that complicated. A number of cities uh, have been doing this already with success, uh, and it is something that we can replicate.
2: In the past nine months to year, Great Choice Voting, or RCB, has really gained a lot of momentum in places around the US. I'll just illustrate a few examples. In New York City, late last year, Voters decided to move toward ranked choice voting beginning in 2021. This is a really big deal because New York City is by far the largest place in the US to put RCV to the test. By the time all of you are watching this, Maine will have become the first state to use RCV in a presidential election, although four states did already use it in their primaries. Voters in Massachusetts and Alaska also decided whether to implement RCV for some of their statewide races. And right here in Oregon, Benton County just became the first to use RCV for their county commissioner race. And I understand there are some representatives working to bring a statewide initiative to use RCV
5: in Oregon. A lot has happened in the last eight months and not just at the level pandemic. As you all know, uh, Portland has been the epicenter of racial justice protests in the United States. In addition, Uh, Voting rights have very much been in the national spotlight as we head into an election with historic levels of voter suppression. And when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, passed away a little over a month ago, I couldn't help but recall some of her words that she wrote in her scathing dissent in 2013 when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, In that dissent, uh, she said that the work wasn't finished that there were major issues uh, that remained. And she named two, quote, second generation issues. One, gerrymandering, and two, at-large voting. We have the largest call for racial justice since the 1960s. I think it's sad that Portland is one of two large cities in this country that continues to maintain this form of voting. We like to think of ourselves as progressive, but if we're serious about racial justice, I think changing the way we vote is one of the first things we need to do. The uh, recent events have only made clear that the need for action is is urgent. It, it needs to happen now.
1: Thank you, Mark, Chrissa, Paulina, and Jordan, and your volunteer videographer Anna too. So it strikes me that portland has only ever had two commissioners live east of 82nd and it's a place where we see some of the lowest voter turnout infrastructure and social needs which makes me beg the question or pose the statement representation matters
6: right
0: it reminds me of an older adage not about us without us.
7: Now let's hear
0: from Commissioner-elect Carmen Rubio who is the first Latina ever voted to Portland City Council.
7: Hi, thank you City Club for inviting me to speak with you today. I am really grateful for the opportunity to be here with you and share a few brief reflections on my experiences as a recent political candidate. My name is Carmen Rubio and I'm a Portland City Commissioner-elect and I won the May primary and will be sworn in in January as the first Latinx woman to be elected to Portland City Council. I've dedicated my career to public service and to building power in the Latinx and immigrant communities, and also to advocating for government to be more accessible to all the people that it represents, and especially to Black, Indigenous, and people of color, working families, and low-income communities. It has been an established belief for a long time that to win a seat on council, you had to raise a lot of money and to have the support of more affluent neighborhoods and people. And that belief has driven the selection and self-selection of candidates who fit that profile and discourage people like me who don't fit that profile to be perceived as viable and appropriate city council candidates to run for public office this was a big reason why I never believed Portland City Council was an option for someone like me. I knew I had valuable ideas to contribute, but I also knew that candidates of color have to work harder, longer, and face more scrutiny because we are up against a system not designed to include us. And even knowing this, many candidates of color have run numerous times, despite the odds being stacked against them. Many had solid qualifications and experiences, but only A very few of us, four to be exact, were successful, and unfortunately, exclusionary systems make elections like mine the exception and not the rule. And during my campaign, I experienced several of these challenges that prior candidates of color and non-wealthy candidates also experienced. As an early qualifier for the Open and Accountable Elections program, I had sizable, smaller donor support and I was able to be more competitive in fundraising by leveling out with large contributions. Public campaign financing is an important step in creating more access and curbing the influence of money in campaigns, but it is not a panacea for electoral and government transformation. Transformation requires a constellation of several reforms to truly create an environment and a landscape where more candidates of color and more candidates from different geographic areas, incomes, and lived experiences can successfully run. So here are a few of my thoughts on my experience. First, we need a system that doesn't require you to be wealthy to run. Under the current system, candidates must run and win citywide, which is really difficult in a city of this size. Citywide elections deter working people who cannot afford to take time off work to campaign from running for office. It was incredibly difficult for me as a nonprofit director and other candidates as well that I would see to work and do the fundraising and voter engagement required to win in a city of 655,000 people. Second, we need districts to ensure that we have equitable representation from all areas of our city. Districts would enable our city council to be more representative of all parts of our city and would result in better more equitable policy and investments and when and we have countless examples that show us time and again that when racially diverse candidates are elected better engagement and better policies with real results happen residents would also benefit from knowing their local candidates understand their issues because they are invested in the same community third We need an updated government structure that supports the size, values, and needs of the Portland that we are today. In the current structure, progress on many of the issues I campaigned on will, to some degree, depend on what bureaus I'm assigned. But as a candidate, I heard over and over from voters about the challenge of navigating multiple bureaus or multiple council offices on on a given issue that intersects across several bureaus. We need a new form of government that will allow commissioners to work together toward a unified vision for the city and develop a strategic path to lead us into a future of social and economic health and stability. An improved structure will engage the council collaboratively on cross-cutting issues and solutions that better integrate and support the work across bureaus. This will ensure that we're making progress on that vision for our city. And finally, fourth, we need to continue publicly financed elections. It would have been financially impossible for me to run a campaign and reach Portlanders in all parts of the city without open and accountable election. This last cycle, we had a more diverse city council uh, candidate, candidate pool for multiple races, maybe more than we've ever had. And we now know that this works and with some tweaks, it will become an even more important tool over time to hold the door of access open. So clearly these are not new ideas, but my experiences and the experiences of many before me underscore what we already know. It's time for a change. And what we've lacked in years in the past is a real community conversation about how our current structures are or aren't working for us and what might be the right changes for Portland. Portland is ready for this conversation. So far, 2020 has been one resounding call for change in the way our institutions operate and represent us and in the demands for dismantling of outdated systems that uphold white supremacy. By investing in a community process, we enable more people to have a say in how our government represents who Portland is now and in future generations. Proponents of the current form of government have argued that the recent election of two women of color, Commissioner Hardesty and myself, is an argument against change but the bottom line is that this electoral system and form of government hinders true and timely representation of the diversity of Portlanders. I was elected in spite of our current form of government, not because of it. It shouldn't have taken more than 100 years to elect people like us. And in a community that still experiences hate crimes and is you know, hitting its 160th day of protesting violence against black lives, And where communities of color still suffer from some of the highest racial disparities in the nation, a system that structurally excludes the possibility of a more accurate representation means that that under this system, these disparities will only continue to grow. So count me in as a supporter for change, and I look forward to the deliberations of the upcoming Charter Commission and in City Club events and discussions like these. I know that we all love our city and we want to make it one that lives up to the values of representation and inclusion and justice and equity, but it will take all of us dialoguing to get there, and we are just getting started. I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today and thank the City Club for tackling this important work ahead of us, thanks.
1: Insightful and inspiring. Thank you, Commissioner-Elect Rubio. Now we'll hear from a couple of researchers at nonprofit think tanks that have been looking closely at how we vote in the US and how alternatives to the usual first-past-the-post-election might produce more equitable representation. Our first guest tonight is Kristen Eberhard from the Sightline Institute. In her new book, Becoming a Democracy, How We Can Fix the Electoral College, Gerrymandering and Our Elections, she breaks down how the US election system shuts out a portion of the population, and makes some votes matter more than others. She'll discuss how districts might work in Portland, both for the voters and for candidates. After Kristen, we'll hear from Pedro Hernandez, Senior Policy Coordinator at Fair Vote, a national nonpartisan organization that champions election reforms with the goal of giving voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. Although the report does not recommend a specific voting method, and instead reviews a few alternatives that have been demonstrated to increase representation, we asked Pedro to deep dive and take us into the nitty gritty of how one alternative voting method might work, just to get us out of the theoretical and into the mechanics. We're going to listen to them back to back so that we can keep things rolling.
8: Hi, I'm Kristen Eberhard, the director of democracy at Sightline Institute. Sightline is a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank here in the Northwest and I live in Portland. And I'm very excited to talk to you today about how we can give more Portlanders a voice on city council. So one of the problems we have right now, uh, oh, so I'm gonna talk about two of the values that the committee identified. So the first one is this idea that Portlanders should have access to someone at City Hall who represents their interests. And one of the problems with the current system is just geography. Um, We see that uh, most of the counselors in the last 25 years have lived in West Side and inner Northeast. Um, Bigger dots on this slide indicate more years served on council. And the other problem is just numbers. So in an at large election, it means that 51% of voters can elect 100% of the counselors. And that means that 49% of voters don't send anybody to City Hall on their behalf. So districts can help with the geographic distribution. It means that at least you're gonna have somebody from Northeast, somebody from East side, but it doesn't solve that numbers problem if it's single winner districts. So in a single winner district, you still have the same situation that somebody with 51% of the votes uh, goes to city hall and the other 49% of the voters don't send somebody. Um, So up to 49% of Portlanders not having somebody represent them in city hall is a lot. And it also means that um, people of color might not get representation if we just use single winner districts. And the reason is that people of color, although they represent about make up about a third of Portlanders, they're somewhat distributed. So here's those four districts again. And if we zoom in, we see that the most people of color on the east side with at 37 percent. So they're still not making it to that um, point where they're guaranteed to be able to elect somebody. So you still might end up with zero people of color in City Hall, even with districts. And um, just in case you're wondering, more districts doesn't Really make this better. Um, here's eight districts. I asked the map maker to try to draw a minority majority district, and the closest he could get on the east side was 38%. So, still not quite enough. Now, in contrast, let's say we expanded the council to 12 members and elected three from each of four districts. So that's the same four districts we saw before, but now each of them is electing three counselors instead of just one. So assuming you have a ranked choice ballot, that means that at least 76% of voters is going to send somebody they voted for to City Hall. Um, So that is a, a better guarantee of representation, fewer Portlanders who don't have a voice. Okay, let's say we only want to expand it to eight, which would still be a pretty small council for a Portland of city of, of a city of Portland's size. But um, we could split the city into two districts and send four councilors from each district. Um, and now you actually get even higher representation because you got four councilors from each district. Um, you guarantee that at least 81% of voters are sending somebody that they voted for to city hall. And um, under this scenario, it's also very likely that people of color get representation. So one district has nearly 20% people of color, the other has about 37%. So assuming that they're all um, voting together for a candidate, um, they're guaranteed to get somebody um, from their district representing them in City Hall. So the second value from the committee that I would like to talk about is this idea that um, we should make it more accessible for people to run for office. So right now, um, to run an at-large campaign in a presidential year, a candidate for city council needs to win around 125,000 votes. And campaigning for that many votes costs a lot. It's out of reach for many people. But with the multi-winner districts and ranked choice voting, candidates need to get a f- lower number of votes. They're running in a smaller area and also getting a lower number of votes for. So that scenario of eight counselors from two districts, you only need about twenty-five thousand votes to win. And with 12 counselors coming from four districts, electing three winners each, you only need about 15,000 to win. So that is much more achievable, even if you don't have a big bank account. If you wanna go out and get 15,000 votes, that that is more accessible. So one final point I want to make is that ranked choice voting could help Portland eliminate or at least de-emphasize primaries. And that alone would give more Portlanders a voice. So right now, um, about twice as many people vote in the general as in the primary. That's in Portland, that's uh, about 100,000 people who turn out for the general who didn't vote in the primary. Um, And in Portland, in the last 10 years, most of the city council races have ended in the primary. So that means the primary was the race, those primary voters were the voters. Um, And by the time the general election voters showed up, those 100,000 people did not get to vote on who goes to city council. So who are those primary voters who are ultimately choosing most of our city council members? Uh, They tend to be older than people who vote in the general and, and quite a bit older than the general population and um, they tend to be whiter. So people of color make up a higher percentage of general election voters than of primary voters. So making the primary really the the election robs 100,000 Portlanders, including younger people and people of color of their voice. But with ranked choice voting, Portland could just get rid of the primary entirely, which would have the added benefit of shortening the election season, which would also help uh, make running more accessible to people who don't have to spend quite as much time uh, campaigning. And even if we do retain the primary, at least we would know the race would not end there. So general election voters would still get to have their say. They'd still get to rank their choices, even if there was a primary to narrow the field. In closing, I'd like to point out that we know how well multi-winner rank choice voting works. Cambridge, Massachusetts is somewhat similar to Portland in its demographics, and it has been using multi-winner rank choice voting for decades to help elect both its city council and its school board, and the result has been that representatives there better reflect the voters than they do here in Portland. So we can make it more accessible for anyone to run and give more Portlanders a voice on the council. I would be very happy to discuss any of my research further. Thank you very much.
4: Good evening, my name is Pedro Hernandez. I'm the senior policy coordinator at FairVote. FairVote is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that champions electoral reforms and gives voters greater choice and a stronger voice and a more representative democracy that works for everyone. Uh, FairVote is based in Tacoma Park, Maryland, but I live over here on the West Coast in San Francisco. The City Club has asked me to do a short video about how Ranked Choice Voting works both for single winner Ranked Choice Voting and proportional Ranked Choice Voting. However, there is a longer video that you can watch that goes a little more deeply into the way these systems work and the way Modified at Large systems work, which you can find on the resources page that they are making available um, via Medium. So why don't we get started here? So for those not familiar with Ranked Choice Voting, this is a quick overview. Under Ranked Choice Voting, voters get a ballot and they rank candidates in order of preference, first, second, third, and so on. And then we count everyone's first choices. If a candidate receives more than half of the first choices, they win, just like any other election. But if not, the candidate with the fewest amount of votes is eliminated and the voters who pick that candidate have their vote count for their next choice on the ballot and that's how we get our winner. And this process continues in rounds until a candidate emerges with over half the votes. This is the system that San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, and San Leandro adopted uh, to eliminate costly runoff elections, uh, but it's led to benefits that I'll describe in just a few slides. Uh, the state of Maine also became the first state to adopt this statewide and, and recently used it in the presidential election. The other form of ranked choice voting is proportional rank choice voting. It's the proportional representation form of rank choice voting, which is also known as single transferable vote. <laughs> uh, the ballot is the same with proportional rank choice voting. Voters get to rank candidates in order of preference, just like the single winner of rank choice voting, and votes are also counted in rounds. But what changes? Rank choice voting operate on the principles of election thresholds, which is the number of votes necessary to guarantee election. For example, when electing one candidate, a candidate with over 50% will be a winner because no other candidate can have over 50%. When electing two, this threshold goes down to just over a third since no third candidate can have that same amount. So the number of votes necessary to win decrease as the number of seats for election go up. In this example, I'll describe a three-winner contest where the threshold to win is 25% plus one. Well, the process is the same. We count everyone's first choices. Uh, If someone has 25% of the vote, they would win, and if not, we would go to round two. And then the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated, and the votes for that candidate are then counted for those voters' next choices here we don't have all of our three winners so we do something a little bit different here because we don't want to unnecessarily defeat candidates or punish voters who support popular candidates and what we're striving for is a more reflective representation of voter preferences we do something called surplus transfer so think of your vote like a dollar but say you only needed to spend 90 cents of your dollar to elect a candidate of choice 10 cents can then count for your next choice. This method of ranked choice voting is not new. (laughs) It is used by every voter in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Malta, Northern Ireland, Scotland, uh, often with multi-winner proportional form of ranked choice voting. And this is what municipalities use in New Zealand as well, as well as Ireland, Cambridge, Massachusetts, East Point, and a park sport in Minneapolis. And, you know, pretty soon we'll probably see it in use in Palm Desert and Albany, California. In my role, I actually closely study ranked choice voting elections, and I live in a city that uses it too. In the Bay Area, it's meant greater choice and a more powerful vote. It empowers communities to build coalition. And I've seen greater unity among groups who dual endorse candidates because they don't want to break their coalition or you know its members might have preferences about who they want to support and it has led to some more civil campaigns choice voting creates a more issue focused and civil campaign it gives candidates incentives to work together at, or at least not criticize each other too harshly in hopes of earning a voters first second or third choice Um, A federal study of Bay Area elections through 2016 showed a significant increase in offices won by women and people of color since ranked choice voting was adopted because, you know, instead of running for two elections, you run for one, and it allows for a campaign atmosphere that incentivizes more collaborative candidates. So why do these things and changes matter? Well, we all deserve to have a fair and equal opportunity to elect candidates of choice. Sizable voting groups ought to have a seat at the table and when important voices are left out, we might not be getting the best policy solutions. So it, it, some of these reasons are, I think, reasons why to think about um, considering uh, uh, a change to a political geography because we should try to make our democracy more rigorous in responding to the concerns of the population. Thank you so much for your time uh, listening to this presentation and for your careful consideration about where you want your city to be. I think these are very important decisions that actually have a huge impact on people's everyday lives. So, um, your thoughtfulness is appreciated. Thank you so much. Wow.
1: That's uh, a lot to digest and it's, It's interesting to me to see how many places around the country have adopted methods that really aim to be inclusive of their diverse communities. And I I thank both of our, um, researchers for sharing that with us. So now it's time for our breakout sessions. Uh, It's time to hear all of your thoughts and, um, Questions. So in a moment, you will be randomly placed in a virtual meeting space with a handful of other people. Each breakout room will choose a facilitator and a note taker who will go over the goals of the session and ensure everyone has an opportunity to contribute to the discussion. If any questions come up in your group, you or your note taker will write them down in a Google doc which we'll share in the chat and we'll use that Google doc to help guide the discussion with our panelists. Sound good? All right, welcome back everyone. I'm sorry to tear you away from the discussion you were having. Know very much what it feels like when you're just about to explain your aha moment and everyone disappears. But here we are back together again. Uh, We've learned a lot tonight. We've been a part of some interesting discussions. Now we'd like to close out the evening with a roundtable panel to discuss the voting methods and answer your questions that you brought up in the chat. So we'd like to welcome back Kristen Everhard from the Sightline Institute, Pedro Hernandez from FairVote, and Mark Stefan and Jenny Lee from City Club's Research Committee. And I'd like to congratulate Jenny because she recently became the Deputy Director of the Coalition of Communities of Color, and we're very excited about that. So congratulations, Jenny. So, I am now going to pop over to the questions that you all generated during your conversations in the breakout rooms and pose those to our panelists. Um, So I think I'm gonna start with a question that came up for the research committee members. It seems like the specific form of voting, ranked choice or star or something else is a really important change why didn't you pick one Stefan? jenny feel free to take that
3: maybe i'll start um i mean i think the simple answer is that uh the committee thought about this a lot and and did not conclude that any one of them stood out so much from the rest that we were in a position as a committee to sort of say this is the method we were more focused on the outcome on, on increasing participation, increasing representation, uh, increasing equity. And so all of these different methods have their pluses and minuses, and you know, I, I look forward to more debate about them, but, but our sense was that us picking this was not the appropriate way to do it. It really was something that needs to happen sort of farther down the line.
6: I would just add that it really kind of leaves us with almost like an empirical question about the method and understanding what works really well for our communities you know kind of considering portland has some specific considerations and really um beyond the the kind of scope through the research process and then that was really where we began the engagement um, robust engagement of community to understand how would this work effectively for uh portlanders
1: Thank you. We appreciate that. We know that there is a ton for you all to consider. And, oh, so there's a question maybe Pedro or Kristen, does RCV, Ranked Choice Voting, have issues with the spoiler effect?
8: I can go first. Um, For what the committee recommended, was uh, multi-winner districts, and so the spoiler effect doesn't quite have the same um, power in a multi-winner race. So if you've got three people winning a race, then uh, the the top three are going to um, to to win in a ranked choice voting. Spoiler is usually more for a single-winner race where maybe you have two candidates who are pretty close, and a third who siphons off votes from one of them. It doesn't have quite the same dynamic in multi-winner.
4: Yeah, I'll I'll add that um, if you have more than one or two like-minded candidates, and you're looking at the number of seats, it's very possible that some other modified at-large system might be more susceptible to a, a split vote, leading to a spoiler. Um, For example, cumulative voting, if uh, there's not enough coordination uh, among voters to plump their votes towards one person or that same person, you can end up with an election where that person doesn't win. Um, Or with limited voting, if you have more than one candidate and the community kind of rallies around one but ends up voting for two or three, then you can have that same kind of dynamic happen with a ranked ballot in a multi-seat setting you would be able to rank those candidates in order of preference and mitigate the effect of that spoiler effect even in multi-seat districts
1: thank you that's interesting um kristen Is there a question for you? Um, Someone in one of the breakout groups uh, said, I missed the premise about having 51% of people being represented. How is that? Reflecting back on some of the modeling that you showed.
8: Uh, I'm sorry, could you explain that a little bit more? I'm not sure I understand the question.
1: Well, unfortunately, I only have that
8: specific question and I don't have
1: the ability to have further
8: contact. Okay, can you say it again?
1: Um, The question was, I missed the premise about having 51% of people being represented. How is that?
8: Maybe this is asking, uh, so in the at-large system that Portland has right now, if you had a situation where 51% of the voters wanted a certain type of candidate, um, then they could put that type of candidate in every single one of the council positions. So that 51% of voters would end up with 100% of the representation on council and the other 49% because you couldn't get to that 51% threshold in any single one of the races, um, then you get zero on the council, whereas a more fair representation would say, hey, 51%, yeah, you get the majority on the council, but that the other people in Portland who voted for something else still have a voice on council.
1: Thank you. If if we have a follow-up question, we will send it along to you from the participant in that breakout room.
6: Next question,
1: I want to direct to our research team. Why did the group not consider a model like Seattle where there are mostly districts, but a few at-large seats, or did you?
3: I mean, the the simple answer is that we did. Um, And we did think about a variety of different models besides sort of multi-member districts. We talked about single-member districts. We, we thought through sort of pros and cons. And, and one thing that stood out for us, uh, and, and I'm happy to have further dialogue at some future point with people about this, is we could not see significant benefits to a hybrid system with at-large. We, we did not see the benefits of at-large, certainly outweighing just moving completely to a district system. Um, at-large, um, you know, mixed with, uh, with uh, districts, Maybe has some positives in theory, but in practice, it can be pretty. It can be problematic because you then have uh, you have members of a council who are arguing that they represent the the city as a whole, for example, and the other district uh, representatives are only representing a district. So that gives them sort of special status for representing the, the whole city. Those sort of factors are sort of dynamics that split the district representatives from the at large um, are problematic and were problematic to us. And so we moved more fully and forcefully to the idea of districts and multi-member districts. That's, that's still a simple answer, not a complex answer.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so where shall we go next? Like the privilege of the moderator of the questions, get a kind of (laughs) figure out where to go? Um, here's one that I think is really interesting, based on all of the information that you guys gave us earlier, um, Pedro. When you're considering of how you would map out districts um, to ensure representation, how do you weigh or evaluate the, um, I guess, the different considerations that we heard earlier? Uh, geographic diversity, um, income, racial, ethnic diversity, when we think about doing that.
4: I would I, I would say probably that the one that most people are concerned about is probably the one that um, comes to mind, which is how do you make sure that communities of interest stay together? And how do you ensure that they have an opportunity to cast a meaningful ballot in a contest where they will have influence over that election or have the opportunity to elect a candidate of choice. Um, And depending on the geographic dispersion of those communities, that could be a single member district for some people, but it could also be a fair election method for other people as well, Um, meaning that a multi-member district with Ranked choice voting could would lower the amount of votes it takes to win to a threshold where it's fair, and that threshold might be more accessible for those growing communities and those communities that are not geographically dispersed. So those are those are kind of the balances, and I think you know district size. You know there, there are federal rules around like making sure that they're roughly the same population, etc. What tends to be the driving factor though for folks interested in representation of communities is where are those communities?
1: Thank you. Um, So a little bit of a more internal thinking on that question. Uh, Jenny, I'm wondering if you might wanna address this one. Uh, Question from a breakout room there doesn't appear to have been equal representation on the research committee. Um, Can you speak to that? Do you consider this report to be representative?
6: Um, So understanding the question is that the representation of the individuals serving on the research committee weren't necessarily representative? Um, Well, I felt we ended, okay, okay. All right, just making sure I'm understanding. I think that we um, ended up with the folks who were on it. We were able to work really successfully together. Um, I think most of the folks of color who were serving on the committee in some way engaged pretty, you know, actually professionally in kind of advocacy for um, communities of color. So I feel like that, um, you know, positioned us well to, um, because of that professional and community background, I felt like we were able to work very effectively with our white colleagues to talk about some of the um, underlying issues and assumptions that would go into it, um, particularly around how we, were presenting, you know, what recommendations, the kind of the reason we were so mindful was really through our research committee, the um, panels that we held, especially when we brought in some folks who um, we worked with or I worked with through, um, through our kind of advocacy and organizing work, and my my day job, and um, I felt like that was a really you know profound moment where it was a great example of the type of things that can happen at City Club, where because as we're building a space where there's more engagement of uh, BIPOC Portlanders, are able to. Uh, engage pretty authentically and have actually some really difficult conversations. We got some really tough questions about the nature of the research committee and I felt like that was very powerful. So I guess it kind of drilling down like the process was um, something that um, I hope was meaningful for the folks serving on the committee. And I do feel like uh, we really came out kind of recognizing the limits of who was on it, including I all of us, no matter what our identities were and that the representation would really occur in the next phase, um, looking to, especially the Charter Review Commission as one process, so it was informative for that. And then also um, whatever the kind of community-driven policy development that needed to happen. And um, so I felt like we walked away with something I feel really um, proud of as um, almost like a tool that we can apply, that we have really important findings and information that will help us shape that next phase of um, community-centered conversation that is really um, vibrant and um, centers BIPOC voices. Thank you, Jenny. I think, yeah, it's a
1: arduous process to get through, and grateful that you all were there to help navigate that. Uh, So, Kristen, we have a question for you. Um, Is there a reason to be concerned about district based coalitions being formed to address district nubiism? Could probably throw in. Lots of other kind of issues.
8: So district-based coalition being formed to address NIMBYism?
1: My reading of this question is would there be concern that when you move to a district-based system that coalitions would form in, in those coalitions to prevent or promote issues like NIMBYism that People within that district are really supportive of citywide.
8: So, like maybe um, there would be a NIMBY coalition within a district, which would then send somebody to council who would veto NIMBY policies. Something. Okay. Um, So, I would say that NIMBYism is um, a thing that a lot of. Portlanders uh, support, and that, yes, if there was a three-winner district and one-third of the people there wanted not in my backyard, they could elect one NIMBY councillor, which would be fair. That would put their voice on council. Um, But if they were only one-third and they only got one councillor, then that councillor would be able to bring the NIMBY point of view, but they would not be able to override and force a NIMBY view if that was not what the majority of Portlanders wanted. So, you know, the way it works is, you get that voice in the conversation, which is important. Um, but if they're not the majority, they don't get to control the conversation.
1: Thank you. So this is, I this is a question for anyone. I'm I'm fascinated by this too. Um, I curious about what the answer is. I don't we might have to piecemeal this together from all of our collective intelligence. Um, what is our upcoming city commissions make up geographically? Um, what parts of the city they live in? We have Wheeler, Hardesty, Rubio, Maps, Ryan. Right.
3: Can I just say I one really thing about that? It's not, yeah. No, look, can I if I mention one thing, which is that part of what's interesting with this that actually gets back to previous councils as well. Um, and, and we kind of learned this as a committee when we talked actually with some current council members. Uh people have different assumptions about where people live in in the city. Um, and and so people, because of they 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 basically impress upon them, oh, this is a person who really represents northwest or southeast or something. But they don't necessarily know where they live in town. And and I'll I'll say I can't say for except for maybe Ted Wheeler for obvious reasons, I don't know where everyone lives um, around town. You know what districts they're in, what parts of the city they're in. I don't know.
1: feel like we need someone to do a quick Google search for us.
6: <laughs> I think we might be, are we majority east of the river now, I think? I think we must be at least at three. Uh, I, I, Hardesty, Rubio, I know Dan
1: Ryan lives east of the river.
6: Yeah, and yeah. I, mean, I believe Mingus Maps does as well. So I think we, we may have gone to that, but I think uh, kind of, you know, speaking to the assumptions you know if you go through inner southeast portland but also as neighborhoods have changed i mean what what a neighborhood a neighborhood might have been like 20 years ago it can be pretty significantly uh different and speaks to yeah it's a dynamic city yeah and oh
1: so we've got we've got some work to do so I'm going to, final question before we wrap up the panel part of the discussion tonight, I want to hear from all of you. What do you think, what are our next steps here? What do we think about next from the perspectives that you all bring to this conversation? Maybe I should, I'll do a, Pedro, why don't you go with first?
4: Um It sounds like you're already thinking about this, which is, um, engaging with the communities that would be most impacted by a change to the electoral system and engaging with them to understand, like, do they feel represented? And if they don't like, well, what, you know, here's a system that would perhaps a ranked choice voting system that would force candidates to reach out to their communities, or that would, uh, lower the barriers to be able to win in an election, by lowering the amount of votes to basically be more proportional to, to the electorate, um, or you know, engaging those questions about what what it is they think uh, would best serve their needs, uh, and I think that conversation is is sometimes something that people overlook, <laughs> uh, but I do think it is it is an important one. Um, I know that in my work, you know in previous work that I've done as well, is that we ask some of these threshold questions like would having a voice make a difference in an impact in your life? Like, was there a vote? Was there a soccer field that was closed because we didn't have a vote on that city council or a, a community center? Or, you know, what, what does that look like? And in really translating like what representation could mean in terms of policy, I think, is a good approach. And if it's Ranked Choice Voting that you're, you're landing towards, you can reach out to us and we can obviously help uh, uh, with whatever resources that we have to, uh, to, to bring that about.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Mark, what are your thoughts on our next steps?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that stands out for me is that the, the obvious thing in front of us um, or in front of the city is the Charter Commission and, and, and the work that it's going to do. But. There's other there's other ways of I think as Pedro got to there's other ways of getting to um, to putting pressure on the, the system to make changes and you know eventually that could be things like initiatives but but really just more conversations need to happen with an action orientation to those conversations uh, including as was already talked about you know what sort of uh, voting method. You know, might ultimately be the one that that Portland prefers the most, um, and that that's going to involve some more conversation because there's a lot of pros and cons as we've already talked about.
1: Great, thank you, Kristen. Thoughts
8: next? Yeah, time? I. I agree with what Pedro and uh, Mark just said. And I just wanna actually give uh, some props to Pedro who just did exactly what he was saying and reached out to community members in Albany to find out what really mattered to them and what their pain point was. And um, it Uh, ended up with uh, a ballot initiative for multi-winner ranked choice voting um, passing with overwhelming support in that city. So um, talking to people and finding out what matters and what can solve um, the problems that they're experiencing can uh, be very successful. So I hope to see something like that happening in Portland.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Congratulations. Uh, Jenny.
6: Mm-hmm. Hey, well, I am very excited excited to um, work uh, collectively on the process of broader community and political education around the work uh, of Portland's democracy so it's I think folks, they recognize an issue and we've done the work to draw together a lot of the policy options and it is that application and finding out what folks want. Um, and I think that the charter commission is an opportunity regardless of what recommendations come out of it. I think it is a site that we can uh, really use to build that momentum and take advantage of um, community engagement opportunities. Um, and then whatever it may go to toward the ballot, that's going to involve really building a coalition. and organizing Um, but at the heart of it it feels kind of like an it's an exciting opportunity and almost like an adventure you know thinking after having done this like i don't know what people are going to say their priority is um because when we we haven't yet had these conversations um and um the political education that will enable people to develop and decide what their preferred policy solutions are. And these are really fundamental issues. And so moving at that rate, a speed of community and specifically centering BIPOC communities in this is going to be critical, Um, but I think it is um, things are converging. So it is um, time to really delve into that work.
0: Thank you all for being part of tonight's discussion. Thank you, Iris, for co-hosting with me. Thank you to the research committee for all your hard work on this research project. And thank you to our sponsors, More Equitable Democracy and Luke Caney's for supporting our work.